So this morning, we're gonna be looking at the question, does everybody worship? And you might think that's like not an important question. You might think that's a weird question. It doesn't make any sense. You're like, well, Nate, you know, there are people who don't believe in God. They don't, they don't go to church. They don't sing songs. They don't worship. They don't read any Bible. They don't, they don't even affirm the existence of God, maybe. And so obviously, Nate, not everybody worships because there's not, there's not uh, people, who are, people who are not religious. But you see, this perspective fails to realize that whether you are religious or non-religious, whether you affirm the existence of God or not, um, every person has something in their lives that they have that they're living for. Something that if that thing were taken away from you, you would feel like your life is no longer worth living. Everybody is living for something. Everybody is serving something. And if it was taken away, if it was stripped away from you, you would lose the will to live. And so, in other words, every person is religious, non-religious, is ultimately living for something. They have a, as I would call it, an ultimate object of devotion in their lives. They have something that gives their life meaning and significance that they, they maybe even find their identity in this thing. An ultimate object of devotion, something they are devoted to, they've devoted their lives to, their identity is based in this thing, in this idea, in this belief, in this thing they are striving for. And um, maybe it's a person that they're serving. Maybe it's their spouse. They worship their spouse, their, their, their kids. Um, that's what their whole life is based on. Um, of course, teenagers uh, in you know, their early phases of development, all teenagers are in the early phase of development. What am I talking about? You know? um, but you, know, you see a teenage girl who's like into Justin Bieber. I, does that kind of date me as old? I don't know if it does. But I don't know what, what the... Uh, teeny boppers are into nowadays, but uh, you know, you know, we know the girl who has into some male singer, and the room is covered with posters of this of this singer, and they go to the concerts and they scream and go nuts, and it wouldn't be weird for their parents to say, you know, so and so worships that singer or that you know boy idol, and then for the teenage boy who plays hundreds of hours of video games. You know, just video games, video games, video games all day long. You know, they only come out to eat and that's it. And they go back into their, in their dungeon and play hours, right? So it wouldn't be weird for the parents to say, you know, my son, he kind of worships video games, you know, leveling up or whatever it is. So yeah, broadly speaking, everybody does worship. There is something that everybody serves. I love how Bob Dylan said it in his song, Gotta Serve Somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. I love how Pastor Tim Keller puts it. You don't get to decide to worship. Everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what to worship. What to worship? You might be thinking, okay, of course, Pastor Nate, you're gonna say that as a pastor, that everybody's engaged in worship because you know you want people to think in religious terms and categories, and so that's kind of your, gonna be your A game. You're gonna be talking about that, kind of pushing this view on us. But actually, it's not just pastors who say this. Secular people say this. People who are non-religious, agnostics say this, and this is really interesting. Um, David Foster Wallace, who's a literature professor and he's an agnostic, he said, and this is kind of sad, he, um, he committed suicide um, and he was an alcoholic and um, he said this statement right before he took his own life, somewhere uh, close to making the statement, he 
took his life sadly. And this is what he said about worship. He said, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as, as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, it's that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts to show, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myth, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, a skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth one of your daily consciousness. That's a long quote, but I think it really serves well that he is recognizing as an unbeliever, the skeptics are saying, yes, everybody's got to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan says. You got to worship something. There's something you're living into ultimate devotion for. And um, Paul's point here in Romans 1 is that the Gentiles who never heard about Jesus, who know God through general revelation, God's revealed himself to all people. They've not heard the gospel of Christianity, yet they still are deeply religious. They are worshiping false idols and in, in engaging in this false worship, it is, is causing a massive effect in their lives. Worship matters. It matters what you worship. And Paul is all about that here in Romans 1, 22 through 25. So let's kind of dig through the text here, verse by verse, looking at God's word. Claiming to be wise, they were full of pride here, right? The pride is when you, someone is so prideful it's amazing that they will do foolish things because they're all about protecting themselves and their own self-image. They became fools. People that are prideful, they think they're wise, they don't realize it, do they? And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up, letting them go up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and dishonoring. It's not producing joy, happiness, rainbow and unicorns. It's dishonoring. It's harming them of their bodies among themselves because they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They're not living an honest, open life. It's a truth of a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator. You know, it's amazing. Think about how bizarre idolatry is. You're worshiping something that God created rather than the one who created it. It's so strange. And it is truly, as Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. So they serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. And so they, they knew God, they, yet they replaced him with this lie and it has this damaging consequence. And that consequence, as the Bible put it, is God gave them up to these lustful, shameful passions and desires. And when God uh, gives people up to these false realities, it hurts them. And uh, God doesn't like, you know, like force them in some bizarre way, but rather he allows the, the natural course of things. He doesn't have restraining common grace, but he lets their sinful hearts take out the, the natural consequences of what's happening. You say, well, why would God allow this? Well, he's letting them know this so that 
So they are aware how folly their state is, how hopeless and how damaging their sin is so that they can turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ and and see that he is the only thing that can satisfy and fulfill them, not these idols. And so God lets them go into this state for judgment so they realize, man, this is damaging me. I need to, this is a problem. You know, when someone has an addiction or has a problem, when they realize it's a problem and they recognize it, then they're willing to seek a solution. So God is exposing this problem, letting them go. Now, when you read this text, though, it's interesting. It says here that they are worshiping animals and and creeping things. And um, that's a little weird. And you might be thinking, oh, I don't have that problem. You know, one's like, you know, like for teenagers, no one's like, hey, you know, let's go, let's go over here and worship that Buddha over there or that, that idol of Baal. You know, <laughs> kids are not you know, struggling with that. You're like, you're weird. I don't want to worship that statue over there. You know, like what's going on? No, I don't want to bow down to Asheroth or Baal. That's weird, dude. Like I'm not into that. It's like not even alluring, you know? And so we, we, people think, oh, this is not talking about the human condition. This is talking about really bad people who like are really out of it. You know, we, we feel as, um, as 21st century Westerners, we, we don't really understand. I've had congregants ask me, so why did the Israelites struggle with worshiping like idols? That's so strange to us. And it seems so disconnected. But what we have to realize is that Paul is talking about all, all Gentiles here. And uh, many of us, I think all of us, I don't know, I've not done a DNA test, but many of us are, are Gentiles here. And so, um, but you're like, yeah, we don't have, you know, I don't have a statue in my closet kind of thing, Nate. But you see, you may not have a visible, tangible statue in your closet, but maybe you have something in the closet of your heart. Money, human approval. Who doesn't want human approval, right? That's nice. Fame, it might be something wholesome and sweet and tender, like your family, you know? Families can be idols too, sweet, wonderful, you know, wholesome Mr. Roger-like things, you know, gumballs and gummy drops, you know, those can be idols too. You know, we don't like to think in that way. It may not be, the, may not be natural to think that those things can be idols, but they can be. The Bible talks about that. In fact, anything that you put above the one true God is in fact, by definition, an idol. Anything, whether it's wholesome or not wholesome, whatever it is, if it's above God, it's an idol because only God deserves to be in the first place. He is the greatest and such is worthy of our honor and praise. And so this is applying to all of us, not just people who bow down to like statues and idols and stuff, you know? Douglas Moo, who is probably the greatest, one of the greatest New Testament scholars in the world, writes one of the best commentators. I mean, it's even rated as one of the best. So I'm not just like saying this as I believe this. Rated as one of the best commentaries on this, on Romans. He writes about Paul. He, Paul, describes a terrible proclivity of all people to corrupt the knowledge of God they possess by making gods of their own. The tragic process of human God-making continues apace in our own day. And Paul's words have as much relevance for people who have made money or sex or fame their gods as for those who have carved idols of wood and stone. So yeah, he's right. It does apply to us. It very much applies to us today. You might be thinking, well, Nate, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I worship Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. I don't have to worry about this idol thing. You know, if someone tries to, you know, tempt me to an idol, I'll be like, I'm not worshiping and bowing down to some, you know, object, whatever. But there's other things. And if we're being honest, transparent, and realistic, 
Christians can and do fall into idolatry. I slip into it all the time, we do. And even uh, John Calvin, who was a Christian theologian 500 years ago, uh, he said that the human heart is an idol factory. It just creates and produces idols seemingly constantly. And that means your heart as a Christian, your tendency is to produce idols. And it's, it's almost hard to keep track of, isn't it? It's difficult to process and keep track of because they can sneak, they're sneaky. You know, they can just sneak into your life without you even realizing it, just kind of coming in. And how this happens is, you know, and it's natural when we think about it. You spend your day doing something a lot, right? Like for me, I work a lot. Um, and, you know, I'm investing in this church. You might be, it might be a company or something you're investing in. If you're doing something a lot during the day and you're, and you're devoting your time, talents, and energies to something a lot, you're spending a lot of your life into something, pouring hours so that you can get promoted or go to the next level. And, um, and you're not spending time praying as much. You're not spending time reading scripture. You're not doing spiritual exercises. There, there begins a, a subtle shift that happens in your mind. Things don't just happen overnight, but they often slowly fade. It's a slow fade, as it's often said. And and so instead of God being your ultimate object of devotion, what happens is your job becomes that because you're working set maybe 60, 70, 80, 90 hours. And so your job becomes that thing that if someone were to take that away, your very purpose and identity would be at at stake here. And um, you invest in it emotionally. And you know what else? I mean, stay-at-home moms, they do this too, right? I mean... You know, you've give, you've give birth to this thing, your your child, not a thing. <laughs> you give birth to this 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 child, this baby, and you're 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 changing diapers and puke and all sorts of things that shall not be named here. And you're and they're crying, they're waking you up. You are investing your life, your personal well-being on these cute, precious babies, and they become teenagers and they cause all sorts of havoc, and then you're just, oh my goodness. You know, I mean it's just like you are investing in these sweet little angels soon to be teenagers, right? And then um, all of a sudden you're like, those, those, you know, 15, 16 year old smelly, rambunctious kids, now teenagers, I'm really going after them, you know? It's hard to believe like that I'm a youth pastor really on some level that I'm doing this. It's like, man, he's really hard in the youth, isn't he? Really going after them. Um, but, you know, and then those, those teenagers and young adults, whatever, they become your idols. You've invested your life into these kids. And so it's so easy in your mind to make that shift, isn't it? To make that shift from, okay, God to my kids, and a shift of, of idolatry happens. And so that hurts us, that hurts kids, it hurts if you're, it's your job, it hurts your job. Because when something happens at work, and you've, it, it, it's your idol, and then something bad happens, it's not just something bad happens at work and I have to work on it or find another job. It's, it's, it's an attack on your identity. And so you freak out and you melt down and you have severe reactions because work is your idol. And if it, your kids are your idol um, and that toddler or teenager that's acting up is not just a toddler or teenager that's acting up and you have to respond in a godly way, when your child acts up and does something bad at school or embarrasses you, it's not just that, it's an attack on who you are. 
It's an attack on your identity. And so you freak out on your child, you explode, and then your, your child feels like he's walking on eggshells because he knows that he's walking around and he is like a picture of your, your identity and worth. He's your idol. And so it hurts that child. And so, uh, and this happens with, with athletes too, um, when they're unable to perform. Professional, I mean, the more advanced they are, the, the more identity is built into them about their, their thing. It's not just, they can't play a, a spur, sport anymore if they get, get hurt, um, you know, and that's no big deal. No, that's a threat to their identity. They've built this identity. And then when, when, they're, when they lose, like if it's, if it's professional or someone who did college sports and they're not able to do it and, um, or that their college career comes to an end and they can't advance any further, they'll often say, who am I anymore? What am I doing? What's my purpose? What's my identity? I've, I've invested all this time into the sport and I, all of a sudden it's, it's gone now. I have to live regular life. And so what happens is that massive depression and pain takes place in their life. And doctors have observed this actually with star athletes. Um, when they get injured, they, uh, they just fall apart. The depression takes place. There's an increased suicide rate that happens. And I can remember personally, I wrestled in college and um, I was so obsessed with wrestling that um, it, it became my idol. That's, that's when I was not a believer, it was wrestling. Um, college and high school wrestling, that was everything I did. I would do hundreds of push-ups in between commercials. Like, that's how committed I was. I would, I mean, for me, it's hard to believe. Now, I would starve myself to make weight. I don't starve myself ever. I am making up for all those times I cut weight forever. Mexican buffets, Chinese buffets. was a good one in Taylorsville. I mean, I'm just, I am making up for lost time. I remember once I starved myself so bad I'd cut weight. I just, I just had a meltdown. I started crying. Um, and so it's just, it, it, was, it was something I built my identity on. When that fell apart as a non-believer, I really took a dive into the deep end. And so um, this is how a clinical sports psychologist, John Murray puts it in the US uh, News article. He says, the more elite the athlete is, the more identity is wrapped up in the athlete's role. When they get injured, it's more devastating blow to them because they're losing something more valuable than just a recreational athlete who might just be doing it for fun on the weekend. So it's not, it's deeper than that. Um, now, uh, that's when your idol falls apart, right? When that happens, when you lose it and it, it causes a major crisis of identity. But I wanna go on the other end of this here. Let's kind of look at the other angle here. What do you do if you and your idol do make it, right? You reach that point that you've always been dreaming and hoping of, you know, all the kids, they go to Harvard, you know, whatever. They're well-functioning adults, you know, and... And so you, your, your idols made it, you know, and you're just, you're feeling so great, you know, or so you seem. So what happens to people when their idols actually make it, when it works out, when they're, it's not taken away and they actually get to the level they've always been idolizing? Um, because idols can hurt you when they fail, but what if you succeed? You get all the money you want. You have a smashing success. You get all the attention and the affirmation you've always wanted. Whatever it is, fill in the blank for your idol. And what's interesting about this, and I have felt this myself um, uh, personally, um, in, my, in my career, I, I said, if I only get to this next level, I'll be happy or I'll, I'll finally feel, be fulfilled. But this is, but it never is that way. And this is what uh, in the 1980s, uh, Synthony uh, says, she's, uh, she's a writer and she writes about celebrities. And um, she knew celebrities 
when they weren't celebrities, right? And so they would, they would always want to accomplish this goal of being a celebrity. And she, and she knew them when they were working in Hollywood, you know, waiting tables and all that kind of thing. And this is what she says. She says, okay. You, you, and she actually named three Hollywood actors that she knew that once they made it, this is what happened. So she says, they had been once perfectly pleasant human beings. Now they have become supreme beings and their wrath is awful. So they were nobodies and they made it and they're just, they're miserable now. They're, they're mean and they're nasty. And um, she kind of says, well, you know, what happens here is that they actually accomplished their goal. They made it, they were a celebrity and they realize the next day that I'm still the same person. Nothing's changed. Nothing's uh, nothing's really happened here, and I, and I don't feel any different. I'm still the same awful person I always was. And so because they've accomplished it, they got their idol, now they're angry that it didn't give them everything they've ever dreamed and ever, ever wanted. And you look at somebody like Jim Carrey. Um, I mean, this guy, his story, I, I used to love, well, I still love Jim Carrey, I mean, sure. Um, but I used to really like Jim Carrey. I mean, too many times I watched Ace Ventura. It should be illegal how many times I watched Ace Ventura, one and two, both of them. And I would read stories on his life and his story is so sad. I mean, this guy, um, his dad wanted to be a comedian and he, he didn't make it. And so he became a janitor and he, his dad was depressed because he never got that opportunity to do what he really wanted and instead lived his life in poverty as a janitor. And so all Jim Carrey, seeing his dad suffer this tortured life, it was so hard for him. All he wanted to do was be a rich, famous comedian and do what his dad never did. I mean, there's, you can watch this on YouTube. It's documented that he felt this way. And then he says, when he accomplishes, I mean, it's, he's pretty successful. I mean, Jim Carrey's like top of his game, you know, in terms of a rich, successful comedian. But this is what he says once he realized that idol that he was, you know, taught to always want from his father and he saw his family just being so poor. This is what he did when he reached the pinnacle of it. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed so that they can see that it's not the answer. So... Your idol does let you down and you see this, you're like, man, it gives you what you always wanted and then it fails you. And then it fails you by not getting what you wanted and so you fall apart. What do people do? What do people like Jim Carrey do when they realize, okay, I've gotten it, I've made it to that next level and it wasn't the answer in life. And in many cases, people feel, and you can even see this in some of Jim Carrey's later interviews, just extreme meaninglessness, depression, just a, fee, a feeling of emptiness inside, losing the will to live. And in order to, to survive this difficult thing called life, um, what people do to survive is they just say, okay, that idol didn't work. Let me just replace it with another and another and another. And so that idol fails. Okay, I'll go on to the next thing. That didn't work out, on to the next thing. You see this with, I mean, Golly, Hollywood marriages. I mean, they kind of like do that with their wives, right? I mean, Larry King, I think it's up to five or six now. I mean, just replacing one another, you know, hoping to find the next romantic high. And it's, it, it, people do this all the time. And it's like, okay, well, I put all my, in, in, all my eggs into the basket of accomplishment. Now I'm gonna move on to romantic relationship. That's, that's gonna be my next 
thing I move on to. And you actually see this in um, professional uh, UFC fighter. I don't even think she does it anymore. I think she went on to the WWE. I don't follow the stuff, you know, but I mean, uh, Ronda Rousey, right? I mean, back in the day, I mean, she was unbeatable. I mean, she was doing interviews. I mean, she was like the bee's knees of UFC women's fighting. Um, and, and so that, as any of us who follow UFC knows that that has fallen apart. That's no longer there. She's, she's gotten beaten 10 ways till Sunday, you know? So she's, she's not in that anymore. And so she had this horrible experience where she feels like her identity, because she'd built her identity on Ronda Rousey, the best UFC women's fighter ever, and you know all this attention, all this affirmation, all this stuff, and she built her identity. And when that fell apart, this is what she did, just replacement. In the medical room, I was down in the corner. I was sitting, this is after she lost her fight. I think it was with Holly Holmes, could be wrong. I was sitting in the corner and I was like, what am I anymore, if not this? And I was literally sitting there thinking about killing myself. Goodness gracious, that escalated quickly. That really got out of hand fast. In that exact second, I'm nothing. Like, what do I even do anymore without this? And no one gives a blank about me anymore without this. And then she said, I just looked up at him. This is her um, boyfriend. And I was just like, I need to have his babies. I need to stay alive. Look at that idol replacement right there. Just, oh, that UFC, that's gone. I just got to replace it. Replace that idol out. And so and many people do that. They think, oh, well, you know, I guess things are not really working out here. So I'm going to start a family and that'll be my new idol. And, you know, with the family-oriented culture around us, you might think, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, that's great. You make, your, make your family the idol. What's wrong with that, Nate? That's, that's got to be my ultimate object of devotion. That's sweet, tender, and wholesome. It's not like, you know, I'm going around trying to find as much crack as I can. You know, it's like I'm loving my family. Like, that's, you know, that's, that's a sweet thing. Well, if you are living your, for your family and not for God and not for a greater good, uh, just, just it's all focused on you and your family. It's all for the sake of the family. It isn't hard to come up with examples where this ends up badly, where you compromise yourself. So say you're at a job and you're making a lot of money. This happens a lot to people, by the way. And the job is providing for your family. It's taking care of your family. But in order to keep your job and keep on making money, you have to do things that are kind of shady, immoral, bad. Maybe it's lying to a boss or a customer or whatever. Do you do something immoral to keep your job, thereby taking care of your family? Or do you lose your job and put taking care of your family at risk? That's the question. Do you say, okay, um, I will lose my job over doing the right thing, following the Lord, and that's what I have to do. Or is it, well, it's all about my family, so I'm gonna do things that are, you know, shysterous, morally questionable, just so I can provide for my family, because that is penultimate. That is my ultimate object of devotion. And if that is the case, then it ends up kind of like a Godfather movie. What, you watch the Godfather movies, and they're all into, hey, you know, take care of the family, you know? And they're doing illegal things, they're doing immoral, shady things. They're killing people. But hey, I'm taking care of, you know, Sonny and Michael. It's all that matters. 
That's all that matters is, is, is being a good dad and providing, getting them all the things on all the, you know, you do me a favor, I do you a favor, you know, kind of thing. And so they have their families taken. You see it in the Breaking Bad series, right? The guy's about to die of cancer and he's, he has no money. The guy's got nothing. And he's like, well, you know, I'm going to cook meth so I can get tons of money for my family. I mean, that seems kind of drastic to us, but that's, that's what happens when people make family their idols. They're willing to do immoral and ethical things just for their families. And I have seen it out here. Um, people say, well, I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't want to follow the Jesus of Scripture because my family is going to disown me. They're going to, my friends, my social circles, my, my family, they're, gonna, they're not going to love me and affirm me as much if I follow Jesus Christ. And I mean, that's got to be pretty short-sighted because we are talking about, people don't think about this. We always think about this life. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about eternal life and eternal death. And people are thinking about their families here and now. They're not thinking about, what about my family's eternity? So they're afraid to follow Jesus Christ. And so, um, and what's amazing is that even though people struggle with this, Jesus still gives us grace, still gives good news to people who are struggling with the fact that they will have to, if they leave, their, their family may disown them if they follow Christ. Um, and a good thing is that what Jesus promises and says here is, because this was a problem with Jews in the first century, Jews in the first century, if they left Judaism and followed Christ, their family would disown them. And so this is what Jesus says to his disciples who are, are going to face this prospect of their family disowning them, that something great is going to happen. It's not just, you know, God takes care of you in this life and the one to come in terms of, of providing a network and social support. We need that desperately. Matthew 19, 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or land for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. You're going to receive more of those things and will inherit eternal life. God provides a family at church that you can do life with, that you can serve Christ with, and it gives you this social connection because we need that. God is a Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The essence of God is is relationships, and that's how he made us in his image. So we need that desperately. And God has given the church, the body of Christ. That's why going to church is important, to fellowship and to know others, to communicate and grow and encourage each other. And so Jesus has promised that to those who are afraid of, of, of their family, uh, lessening the relationship or maybe even disowning them. He promises that. So when people often say, okay, well, you know what, Nate? I, I got a way out of all of what you're saying. I found, I found a way to trick you. Like, you know, kind of, I, I, I got something that's got, I'm going to worship that I'm going to serve that doesn't involve following Jesus or God and is going to lead to good things, wonderful things. I'm going to worship morality. I'm, my goal, my ultimate object in life is to be a good person. What's the problem with that, you know? Well, Problem is, we all know none of us are good, right? We, we make mistakes every day, we, you know, to err as human, and so that's gonna bring depression and despair. But you've always noticed this, people who say, that, pull the good person tactic, you start talking to them long enough, you know, bring out the conversation a bit. And you, you start seeing the immoral things they're doing in their lives, and they're like, well, you know, but that's okay because of this and this. So what really happens is that it's not really morality they're serving, it's some deeper desire, and they use that deeper desire to rationalize all the things they are doing. And so there's no idol. There's nothing that can replace the God of the universe. There's nothing that can replace Jesus. He's our only hope to find true fulfillment, true satisfaction. And so all idols produce suffering and ruin. 
And a lot of the suffering, we, I'm not saying all of it, but a lot of the suffering that we experience in this life, the suffering that I experience in life, I can speak from experience going through this. A lot of the suffering I put myself through is because I'm holding on to an idol. Because idols cause suffering in so many ways. Um, we don't want to recognize it, but if we're honest, we all have an idolatry problem. I love the way I was reading some pastor this week. This is what he says. What is that thing in your life that if God were to take it away, you'd feel like life was not worth living? I can tell you if I would feel that way if my, God took my family away. I struggle with that too. When we're able to answer that question, we will figure out what we are really worshiping and what, by definition, might lie at the root of our suffering. It could be our children, our spouse, an ambition, or a dream of financial success. Those good gifts God gave us for enjoyment that we have turned into idols. Suffering is often the process of these things being stripped away. And again, I'm not saying that kids are great, jobs are great, but when they're the ultimate thing, that's when this is a problem. I'm not saying, oh, you know, treat your kids awful. You know, do really bad at work. That's what Pastor Nate said. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is those are wonderful things, but they are not ultimate. They're all used for the glory of God. And so when we forget about that, that's when the suffering really hits. Those good gifts God gave us for our enjoyment that we have turned into idols. Suffering is often the process of these things being stripped away. It's very painful. Indeed, there is nothing like suffering to remind us how much we need God. What the good news that is purpose and is planned for our lives moves in a different direction from our own. Isn't that the truth? And so if you're going through a season of suffering over an idol, God is trying to show you something. Because we all are, I think many of us, if not all of us, are going through a season of suffering because of an idol. And we, we forget that God is the greatest. He is the one we ultimately worship. We are not to live in a lie. If we live in a lie, even in our Christian lives, it's gonna hurt us. And so we need to walk in the truth, worship the true God, because as Jesus says, it is the truth that sets you free. And so putting God first as the ultimate object of our devotion will bless us, help us, and get us through the greatest storms of life. Because an idol does not get you through a storm. It's just vain stuff. It never helps you through the greatest difficulties because that idol can be gone like that. It's, it's not eternal and everlasting, but there's something that is everlasting and eternal. According to Romans chapter eight, it's God's love for you. You trust in Jesus this morning. God has everlasting, unlosable, unconditional love for you. That doesn't go away. Everything you see around you, well, we'll have eternal resurrection bodies, but you know, um, the church, finances, all those things, those things all go away, but God's love and mercy and grace is unchanging and unlosable, and it's always there for you at every storm. If it's a person or a thing, those, you know, your bank account, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not into conspiracy theories really, but you know, if you, hold, you say the government can just take away your money like that. Um, anything can happen to your money. Anything can happen to your success. It's gone quickly. Human affirmation is as fleeting and as like quick as just like the weather. It's up and down and all around. Those are not things to find your worth and value in. It is God's eternal everlasting love. And that relationship Jesus Christ describes as eternal life because there's nothing like it that this world can provide you with. It is knowing the infinite, perfect God of the universe, the knowing and having a relationship with your creator who loves you 
and sent his son to die for you. That is eternal life, knowing that God of infinite grace, love, and mercy. And that's why I love the way Jesus put it. This is how he describes eternal life, is knowing him. And this is eternal life. They know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray and reflect upon what Jesus did for us.